Before we begin this ethics podcast, let us ruminate on the following verse in Psalms. This is in Tehillim in Psalms 121, verse 4. Shomer Yisrael. Behold, he will not sleep, he will not slumber, O guardian of Israel. This verse, of course, on a simple level means that the Almighty is always watching over us. He's always protecting us. He's always guarding us from any threats that we may face, whether we are aware of them or not. Now, my grandfather, blessed memory, he used to say something very interesting about this verse. He would interpret this verse to mean that God does not allow us to sleep or to slumber or to get too drowsy. In life, sometimes we have a tendency to get a little tired, a little sleepy, a little bit off track, a little bit forgetting what we're really here to do. We're not firing on all cylinders. We're not really living up to our potential. We get into a pattern of behavior and we kind of just live and don't really strive to achieve the wonderful aims and objectives that the Almighty placed us here. We are asleep. The Rambam famously tells us that the shofar is there to wake us up. It's an alarm clock, but it's a spiritual alarm clock to wake up our soul, to stir our soul back to life. When we are spiritually asleep, the Almighty does not let us slumber. He does not let us sleep. He jolts us awake. He elbows us in the ribs. It may hurt. It may be a bit uncomfortable. But ultimately, it's for our benefit because he wants us to achieve wonderful and great things. We are up to chapter 6, Mishnah 6, way number 19 of the 48 ways to acquire Torah. And this is the fourth of the limited ways. We had limited commerce, and we had limited derech eretz, the way of the world. We had limited pleasure, and now bemiut sheina with limited sleep. Sleep, that strange phenomenon that we're all subject to, the mighty men have to lay down in fetal position, completely exposed to all danger and oblivious to what is around them. You have to lapse into this unconscious state for hours at a time. For some reason, it's so enjoyable and so delicious, but no one can quite figure out why. And you wake up, please God, and you're refreshed, and you are alert. The adenosine builds up throughout the day, and you get sleepy and tired, and then you go to sleep, and somehow magically you're a different person. You wake up with a clear head, with more energy, with a fresh start. Now, humans are wildly divergent in how much they sleep. Some people can sleep for more than 10 hours a day. I remember in yeshiva, there was this idea that on Shabbos, during the winter, when Shabbos starts really early, everyone tries to get a bagel. So a bagel is 12 hours of sleep. You go to sleep at 7, 7 to 7, 8 to 8. Some people subsist on you know 5 hours or fewer Now, what's interesting about sleep is that although sleep does make you more restful and more energetic and more alert and maybe a little less irritable, it has diminishing returns. For some reason, there's a sweet spot 
the Goldilocks zone, there's an amount of sleep that results in maximum alertness. If you, let's say, seven is the right amount of hours for you to sleep, and you sleep 12, I'll be double as alert. doesn't work like that. You'll actually be more tired. That's one of the great mysteries. Too much sleep, it makes you more tired. Now, too little, that's very unhealthy. It can cause all sorts of health problems. You'll be fatigued throughout the day. You'll have suboptimal performance. It can cause a whole litany of health problems, premature aging. Of course, you'll just be less sharp and less potent and less competent. And it's an interesting subject to appear in our book. You know, Pirkei Avos is the book of ethics. And we're told that one of the ways to, to achieve wisdom, one of, one of the approaches, one of the means by which we can conquer what we strive for, can understand the Amayis Torah, is with sleep, a limited sleep, not too much and not too little. Of course, that doesn't mean that we should eliminate sleep as much as possible. You know, there is an absolute bare minimum needed to survive. One of the things you need to live is to sleep. And if our sages were telling us to sleep the absolute minimum, they wouldn't need to tell it us because that is not in our hands. So when it says a little sleep, it means a little more than the absolute minimum to survive. The Talmud actually talks about how it's physically impossible to go three days without sleep. So there is a baseline that is absolutely necessary, and that's not even in our control. If our sages are telling us a little bit of sleep, it must be a little more than just subsistence sleeping. A little sleep, but not too much. And this is the sweet spot, the ideal conditions that are needed in the pursuit of wisdom. Now, we know that sleep is very beneficial in a myriad of ways. Of course, the body, it's a tool that we need in our pursuit of life. And it gets tired, and it gets fatigued. And on a cellular level, we know that the cells themselves get damaged and need to fix themselves, and the brain gets full of all this junk. And sleep comes, the body recharges, and the fatigue dissipates, and the cells repair themselves. And all the junk of the brain that clouds our thinking, that makes our perspective a little less lucid, all that gets filtered out. There's a very wonderful book, even though some of the conclusions, from what I understand, have been challenged. There's a book about this, Why We Sleep. And it talks about how the benefits of sleep are, 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 are so comprehensive that if this was a pill, if you made sleep into a pill, it would be the greatest pharmaceutical product of all time. Because it'll make you happier and healthier and thinner and more intelligent and more energized and you'll live longer and you'll be more handsome and your skin will radiate. Of course, to sleep, it's a central part of life and it's very beneficial for our health. But not just our physical health, our emotional health, our emotional balance, our emotional equilibrium that too is greatly affected by sleep. You wake up in the morning, you have a clean slate, and all the problems of yesterday seem to just 
fade a little bit, not to be as important, as salient as they were yesterday. You have a new start. You're fresh. You have a fresh beginning, a fresh perspective. When someone has a problem, it's a common adage, maybe you should sleep on it. Somehow it has this ability of shifting things and putting things in a different light, in a different perspective. When someone's in a bad mood, they're having a bad day, you sleep and somehow you have a new chance. It's this small vacation from life. I always think about this great gift that the Almighty gave us. You know, imagine if we never slept. The Almighty could have designed us that we're here for 70 years, 80 years, whatever it is, and we're here. But there's a certain pattern, there's a certain rhythm, there's morning, there's afternoon, there's night, there's dust, and then it's night, and then there's the seasons. If we're lucky, I guess if we, people who live outside of Houston, there's something called seasons. And that creates a certain rhythm in life. And that gives this opportunity to always have these opportunities to to restart. But imagine if it was just all the same or we're just always running the rat race that never ended. Imagine how difficult that would be. I was thinking like, you know, if someone would get into a bad mood and there's no sleep, it just didn't exist. There's no natural means of filtering that out of their life. We've all had that experience. Having a rough day, maybe getting to scuffle with a coworker or God forbid a family member. You wake up and it's like, oh, well, it's a new day. It's a, the sun is out, drink some coffee. And the problems of yesterday are not, are not as present, are not as real, are not as unconquerable as they seemed at night. The Almighty, in his benevolence, created this system and these rhythms of life that we always get a chance to, to start fresh and to have a new beginning. I'm thinking that, you know, on a, on a daily basis we have sleep, but on a weekly basis we have Shabbos as well. And Shabbos is a day of rest. And it's a whole day, of course. And we're up a lot of Shabbos as well. But in my head, you know, I've, I've had the great fortune of being Shabbos observant my whole life. So I don't know what it's like to not have it. But in my head, it's like the same thing as not having sleep. And it made me appreciate, just thinking about the subject, it made me appreciate what a great privilege it is that we have this mitzvah. It's like a, it's like a sleep for our week. You get to rest, you get to reset, and then you have a new opportunity, a new week ahead. I, I know that people who are not Shabbos observant, they view this as a great hurdle. So many restrictions and so many difficulties and all these rules. And I think that the difference in perspective between someone who is Shabbos observant versus someone who is not, it's the same thing. It's the same difference as the people, like, like the adults and how they relate to sleep versus small children. You think of a, a small child and they always hate to go to sleep. And they're always fighting it and resisting it. And you put them into bed, it's like you're putting them in behind bars. Why? You know, the adults were so excited to go curl up in bed and 
Get me out of this. I'll see you in seven hours. Why do kids resist sleeping so much? I think the reason is because they assume that they're going to miss something. Something exciting is going to happen and they'll, they have FOMO, fear of missing out. And they're sure that once they fall asleep, the disco lights come out and everyone begins to party without them. Adults, you know, we have a more realistic take on life and we learn to value sleep and we see the benefit and we're not going to miss anything. I feel like that's part of the difference between Shabbos observant people, those who are fortunate enough to be Shabbos observant and those who are not quite there yet. And I think it's a, it's an interesting thing to think about. You know, if someone is not Shabbos observant, they're in big trouble. They're in a very bad place. Shabbos is our testimony of our faith. God created the world in six days, rested, ceased to create on day seven. And when we do the same, we testify that he created the world. And if someone doesn't keep Shabbos, God forbid, then they're in effect refusing to testify that God created the universe and everything in it. And of course, it's a capital offense, very serious. And it's terrifying to think about if someone, God forbid, is not Shabbos observant, there's going to come a a point in time where they have to justify that. And God's going to ask them, the heavenly tribunal will ask them, like, why did you not heed the instruction? It's, It's said dozens of times in the Torah. It's a very serious thing. And someone who doesn't keep Shabbos is, is condemned to potentially eternal shame. But putting all that aside, it's a lovely thing. It's like a, it's like a sleep for the week. It's, it's rest. And people who do have the great privilege of being Shabbos observant, they all testify to this. They all realize that it's actually, it's so refreshing, it's so wonderful, it's something that they cherish and value and realize the, the importance of, of it. It's like sleep. People who are not yet Shabbos observant, they're like the small children. Oh, we're going to miss everything. We're, we're going to miss out all the partying. You're not going to miss out anything. You don't have to be like a child who's all fussy and cranky at the notion they're going to miss out. Truth is, Shabbos is like this wonderful vacation, so richly enjoyable, and everyone who has the great fortune and privilege of observing Shabbos knows this to be true. But back to sleep for a second. You know, one of the benefits of sleep is its ability to provide this emotional reset, this, this small vacation from life. And in this way, way number 19, we're told there has to be a balance. Too much vacation. That's not great either. You don't want to be living to sleep, living to vacation, living to run away from life. So sleep is beneficial, of course, for health reasons and for emotional reasons. But spiritually as well, our sages tell us there is a great function that sleep provides, or actually a few functions that sleep provides and opportunities to a certain extent, the definition of sleep is the soul departing to some degree from the body. The soul is disencumbering itself from the limitations of the body. 
Now, what does that mean? It means that all the rules and all the stricta of physical life are suspended, which is why if you have a dream and you're positive in real time that it's it's so true and it's so real and it's so palpable, and then you wake up and you realize, actually, no, it just defies all the rules, but somehow you were convinced at the time, even if some people are lucid dreamers, and then you know they're dreaming, but they're, they're still convinced that this is so real. And it all made sense. It all fits in. And they wake up and they realize, no, actually, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't fit in. Why? Because the experience that they're having is one, to some degree or another, of being removed from the body and therefore removed from the limitations of the body. Now, if someone just lives in a fantasy world, and someone's pursuits and someone's agenda is all nonsensical, then those fantasies will be nonsensical and will be an experience that's not really beneficial. You can have just this fantasy nonsense, and yes, it's not limited by the stricta of, of the body, it's not limited by the, rest- the restraints and the limitations of the body, but it's not actually beneficial. There's, there's, there's no advancement that you're making. There's no insight that you're able to tap into. But I say this, tell us, and this is something that we can still yet experience even today. If someone orients their life around spiritual pursuits, when they sleep, they're able to accomplish greater spiritual achievements because of this disencumbering of the soul and of the consciousness from the limitations of the body. In effect, prophecy, with the exception of Moshe, we're told, that was experienced exclusively in a trance-like, dream-like state. For the same reason. You want to experience something that the soul experiences, not the body. You have to find some way to create some sort of distance, some gap between the body and the soul. You'll notice all 11 dreams of Genesis are all prophetic. We're not told any dreams that are non-prophetic. And the reason why dreams are prophetic in Genesis is because the non-prophetic dreams are not important and the prophecies are going to be experienced in a dreamlike state. When someone who is rooted, who is grounded in spiritual pursuits, there is a force multiplier that is unlocked when they remove themselves, so to speak, from their body. They remove themselves from the body and its limitations and the world of the body, and they can ascend to much greater heights. The Talmud tells us that when the sages would sleep, sometimes the Talmud says that the the sages were, were sleeping and they were talking and all the students were crowding around and they would listen to lectures from the great sages that they delivered in their sleep. And sometimes the Talmud just says, when there's a debate in the Talmud, sometimes the Talmud would say that one of the sages would say to the other sage, oh, this you said when you were asleep, which is a way of criticizing, and this is not actually accurate. This, this is something which sounds like a dream. But the truth is, is that there are recorded statements in the Talmud 
ideas that are enduring, that were acquired in the middle of the sleep. In more modern times, not so modern, but we know there was the, the great uh, Annas Mirabilis of Rabbi Chaim Vital and the Arizal in the 16th century, where all of the Kabbalah that we have was transmitted from the Arizal to his students. And we're told that once the Arizal was sleeping, and he was mumbling. So all the students are crying around to try to figure out what insight could they glean. You know, Arizal, uh, his, his sleeps were not like our sleep. He was able to transcend almost in a prophetic way and acquire knowledge that you cannot acquire when you are fully grounded in your body. So when the Arizal woke up, the students asked him, what did you learn? What discoveries did you have? What insights did you glean? And he told them, if I were to speak nonstop for 80 years, that result didn't make it to 40. If I were to speak nonstop for 80 years, I cannot tell you everything I just learned. Because again, there's a capacity to tap into a more infinite level once the soul, so to speak, is removed to some degree or another from this world. And therefore, yes, for us, that means most of it, most of it for us, it means that we just get into nonsense. But if we're rooted in spiritual growth and pursuits, then what we can accomplish at night or during our sleep is actually much greater than what we can accomplish during the day when we're up. And even for us simpletons, it is proven, it is incontrovertible, and I know this to be true. If someone is really immersed in Torah study, really immersed, you know, we, 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 uh, today, like we're immersed, you know, we're studying together, it's great. But someone is like really, really immersed to the exclusion of any other pursuit. This is something they do in yeshivos. They try to encourage the students to give lectures. You know, young students, 16, 17, 18 years old, they're a child. They can't buy a beer. They probably wouldn't want to do it anyhow. But they're a kid. They can't rent a car. They're going to give a lecture in front of the, in front of uh, other students. The lecture is supposed to be given by the professor, by the sage, by the Rosh Hashiva. But no, they throw the students into the lion's den. And they told, okay, Thursday night, it's, it's your turn. You're up. And that forces someone to actually discover capacities that they didn't know that they had. And they're going to spend 12, 15 hours a day preparing for this lecture because I'll... This is not this is not one of those things where everyone says nice, claps their hands. It doesn't work like that. They're throwing you into the sharks. And those sharks are swimming and they will love to tear you apart and to rip you to shreds. That's the way that's the meritocracy of the yeshiva. Ideas that are not airtight and you can't defend will get shredded. 
So you know you're going to be thrown into that. What do you do? You study as hard as you can. And you get so immersed in it that temporarily you get transitioned into a different level. And you will discover that your dreams will suddenly be elevated to a a level that you've never seen before. You will start dreaming about what you're studying during the day. And you'll even discover ideas and angles and insights that you couldn't have thought of during the day. If you spend 12 to 18 hours a day for three, four days trying to figure out a very difficult passage in Rambam, you'll go to sleep at night with a question and you'll wake up with an answer. I'm saying that. No, I'm not hedging myself. (laughs) Where's the hedge? Rabbi Walby, where's the hedge? There is no hedge. That's the way it works. It's part of the spiritual power of, of sleep. If this dominates you for a couple of days, it's going to happen in your sleep, which is a wild thing. Go to sleep with a question, wake up with an answer, organize it, and you can present it to your peers, to your colleagues, and even to your, your superiors in the yeshiva, and you can defend it. And now you have a little corner of Torah that's yours, that you earned, that you were given, that you were bestowed by the Almighty. I'm not saying that someone will will accomplish these things exclusively during their sleep, but this could be part of it. Now, on a Kabbalistic level, we're told that other things happen to our soul at sleep. There's an essay that I once spoke about in a Parsha podcast a couple of years ago. It's talking about uh, Jacob in Egypt, and he's about to die. He's 147 years old, and uh, the days are nearing, the verse tells us, the beginning of Parsha's Vayechi. The days of Jacob are nearing, and he knows, he has this premonition that he's going to die. And the question I was trying to figure out is, how does Jacob know when he's going to die? And specifically, the, the words that the, Talm, that, the, that the Torah uses to describe Jacob's foreknowledge of his death are that the days of Israel became near. We think of someone, they're going to die. We think of that as, as a lifetime. You know, their, their lifetime is going to end. But here, the days of Jacob are nearing. So it's not so clear what the, the verse intends. And the Arachim has an essay about this. And what he says, Kabbalistic, of course, he says that a person is actually not apportioned a complete soul. We don't have a complete soul. Instead, the soul is divided up into different sparks. And what that means, I don't know. But evidently, there are there's the capacity of divisibility of a soul in a way that doesn't diminish it, which is another mystery. Of course, the soul is a mystery. But there's a capacity or there's an element of the soul not being complete, but being divided up 
into different nitsotsos, different sparks. And every iteration of life, there's an amount of sparks that are apportioned to a person. And the number of sparks equals the number of days that a person will live. People typically live, you know, 70, 80, 90 years. So we're talking about, you know, 25,000, 30,000 days or so. So everyone's given 25, 30,000, I guess on average, right? We don't know if we'll make it out till tomorrow. Someone's given a certain amount of sparks. And every day is its own little spark of life. So every day is its own little lifetime for that particular part of the soul or element, dimension of the soul. And if a person fills a day with mitzvos, then that element of the soul, that spark, is perfected. And God forbid, if someone does not fill a certain day with mitzvos, does not live every day the way it's supposed to be lived, then that spark, that element, that dimension of the soul is flawed, is blemished, is missing what it needs. Incredible idea here. You don't have a full soul. It's divided into sparks, little sparklets. And the amount of sparks corresponds to the amount of days that you are apportioned. And every day of the opportunity to fix, to actualize, to elevate the soul component or dimension that is that day's soul. And you do that via mitzvos. Because mitzvos benefit the soul, not the body. And if you, God forbid, neglect a certain day's responsibility, well, that corresponding part of the soul is blemished. Now, what does this have to do with sleep? So the Archaim, he tells us that this is what happens at sleep. It's the changing of the guards. One element of the soul, yesterday's sparklet of the soul, departs, and the new one replaces it. It's the swapping of the sparks. One element goes away, and the new one is installed. And this is why, explains the Arachim, this is why the Talmud tells us that sleep is a 60th of death. It has some modicum, some degree some element, some scintilla of death. Why? Because for that day's soul, it's death. And of course, it's also birth in the morning or over the course of the sleep for the new element of the soul. Now, he goes on to tell us that if a soul or a sparklet, an element of the soul is perfected, then it is placed in wherever it needs to be placed but it cannot come back. Once a certain role, responsibility is fulfilled, then that soul, that, that part of the soul is done. But if, God forbid, a soul or a sparklet of a soul is not completed, it's not fixed, it's not refined, it's not given what it needs, then it does not leave completely. It's still retrievable. Even sparklets of the soul that were not completed can still be brought back and be elevated and fixed and given their 
required tending to perfect it and to refine it. So this is, of course, a Kabbalistic idea about sleep, and this is why the days of Jacob were nearing, because he, he was so spiritually sensitive. He, he knew his bank of souls. He, he knew how many he had, and he could sense that it's diminishing. Everybody get a new one, and okay, you perfect that, and you get, get a new one. And once the, uh, the, the quiver is, is emptying or nearing empty, he can sense that he knows that he's about to pass. So that's the spiritual dimension of, of, of sleep. Of course, we don't know, or it's more a Kabbalistic dimension of sleep, but we don't know anything about this. And we don't know what it even means to have different sparks of the soul and different elements of the soul, different dimensions of the soul. The whole thing is mysterious to us. But this is a long way of saying that there are a variety of purposes and functions and benefits that sleep has. And it's important to have a little bit of it. And it's beneficial in a myriad of ways to have a little bit of it. But too much, that's a problem. And throughout the ages, throughout the generations, the sages strove to avoid living life to sleep. For example, the Talmud tells us that David made sure that he always maintained a very minimal sleep schedule. He never slept past midnight. And he would wake up like a lion and do the work, the service of God. Even in more recent times, the Gona Vilna, his sleep schedule was four stints of 29 minutes each. And there's a reason why. It's a little less than two hours a day. And there's a reason why it's got to be 29 minutes, not 30 minutes, because 30 minutes is a certain transition to a different level of sleep. And he knew how to time the amount of sleep so you get just the benefits and not the detriments. But there were others who, who used to do that as well. The Chazanish were told he, he would follow the Gona Vilna's schedule. But not everyone did. But this idea, again, it's a surprising thing to appear in the Book of Ethics. But there has to be a, a well-thought-out plan for how we're going to utilize this tool and not allow it to dominate us. How do we manage our sleep? Rabbi Yashiv passed away in 2012, was the greatest halachic arbiter of his age. He had a sleep schedule where he slept from 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. Four hours every night. And then he would study from 2 a.m. until prayer, chakras, and then study the rest of the day as well. But that was the right amount for him. Not too much and not too little. Again, if it's a 60th of death, it's not so pleasant. We don't just want an endless, infinite amount of it. It's necessary. But don't have more than necessary. Unless, here's the exception, unless someone is wicked. The Talmud tells us that sleep for the wicked is a very good thing. The more, the better. Because when someone is righteous, well, what's the definition of being righteous? It means that they're doing what Hashem wants of them. They're doing what is beneficial for them. What's beneficial for them and for their soul and for the world. And therefore, the more time that they are awake and alert and capable of doing mitzvot, the better. 
So sleep for the righteous is bad. But for the wicked, it's beneficial for them. Less time is less opportunity to sin. Of course, on a practical level, it's it's hard to make any rules. Some people work really well with five, six hours. Some people need seven, eight. But there are some heuristics, some general rules of thumb that we can follow. One thing we know is that when someone's excited about what they're doing, they're really engaged, and really involved, and really into it, they need less sleep. If someone's very busy, they need less sleep. If someone's working on something. The great inventors working on, a, on an intricate problem or a project, they could go for days without sleeping. On the other hand, gamers who are playing PlayStation or Xbox, they could get so immersed in their game they could just tune out everything. You don't need to eat. You don't need to sleep. You don't need to anything. God forbid even avoid tending to their children. But the principle is the more intense a person's day is, the more focused, the more engaged, the more enjoyable a person's day is, the less sleep they need. Prisoners People, God forbid, in solitary confinement, they can sleep 16, 18 hours a day. Not much going on. The body somehow compensates for that, and they just sleep, 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 sleep. The Talmud has a great anecdote about the Simchas Beis HaShoeva. This was the celebration that was done on the festival of Sukkot, and they were dancing, we're told, for four days straight. All the great sages would come to the temple and they would dance and celebrate and, and, and do this joyous service and worship of God. But the Talmud says, well, what about sleep? Well, what was the plan with the sleep? How could they go for so long without sleeping? Because it gives us their schedule. Like they would, they would the whole night, and the whole day they would study and they, they, would, they would pray and study and then the night again. Where's the sleep? So Talmud says is that they, when they were dancing, they would each put their head, lean their head on the guy next to them on their shoulder, and like they were dancing as they were sleeping. But uh, if someone's really engaged in, in on this high level, this exuberant level, this ecstatic level, you need less sleep. You make a little bit here, wink here, wink there, and that's enough. Some people, if they allow sleep to overtake them, it really can. Like all the things that were told in in this list of ways to wisdom, there are all these things that can overtake your life. I know some people that uh, they cannot sleep without a noise machine. It's got to be a noise machine. They travel with it. They mean, the right kind of mattress and the temperature got to be in 67.5 degrees. And they cannot eat this food, or else it'll affect them. It's true. Of course, it's true that the diet does affect sleep. You know, lions, they have to sleep 20 hours a day because they're digesting all that meat. A friend of mine recently went to Israel, and he was visiting a venerated sage in Jerusalem. And he texted one of our group chats about some of his takeaways. And he said that this great rabbi almost never eats meat on Shabbos lunch because he wants to study. You have a heavy meal, 
you have a hot meal, makes you tired and drowsy, you need a, you need to sleep. There's a traditional food, of course, that we eat on Shabbos lunch, the chalant. It's like a stew, beans and barley and meat and potatoes. And there is a, a spiritual reason for this as well, because the Karaites, they said, well, you can't have any fire on Shabbos. Even if you make the fire before Shabbos, we know you can have a fire on Shabbos as long as you make it before Shabbos. And therefore, as a way of demonstrating that we do not agree with the Karaites, there is an ancient custom to eat hot food on Shabbos day from a fire that was lit before Shabbos. But if that's going to affect your ability to study, maybe, maybe this is a calculation for people that are really, really developed. Maybe you could say, you know, I'll have hot food, I'll have a hot tea with hot water that was heated before Shabbos and that was maintained on a fire on Shabbos or a hot coffee. And that's a way to fulfill that custom and still not, uh, you know, fall into um, a slumber for five hours on Shabbos afternoon. Now, how much to sleep? It's interesting. The Rambam talks about this and he says, this eight hours. That's the right amount. Now, we know he himself he wrote an autobiographical account of his day. He didn't sleep eight hours. He would study the whole night. And in the laws of Torah study, he tells us, if someone is serious about becoming a Torah scholar, they have to study at night. And the majority of your wisdom will be acquired at night. And therefore, if someone is serious about this, they want to acquire the crown of Torah all of their nights. Not to lose even one with idle sleep or chit-chat or food and drink and delicacies. Don't lose even one. So what this tells us is that, yeah, when it comes to health, maybe the optimal amount is eight hours or no more than eight hours. He says no more than eight hours. But if someone is serious about this, someone wants wisdom, then sleep can be a detriment of course, it can be ameliorated with some coffee. And caffeine, of course, affects everyone differently. I had a friend who told me that he became so addicted to coffee that he would wake up in the middle of the night because his head would start hurting. He was having more than 40 coffees a day, which was dumb, which is insane. I, I find that if I have two cups, it's a little too much. Sometimes I, if you have a few days of too much coffee or too much Coke Zero, then suddenly at night, like you're too wired and too jittery, you can't fall asleep. So what I do, if that ever happens, I take a day off from coffee, kind of reset and filter it all out. But I find like you have one coffee during the day, maybe you could have during the meal, have a nice Coke Zero, because if you have a Coke on its own, Apparently affects you differently than if you have it, you know, with food. Too much, it's a problem. Too little, maybe you're not sharp enough. Some people say, "Well, I don't want to get addicted because then there's a fast day. There's six fast days in the Jewish calendar. We don't eat, we don't drink. And what do I do then?" So first of all, you don't want to optimize for fast days. Fast, fast days are not great anyhow for your uh, physical equilibrium. But today. They have this incredible technology of slow-release pills. So you could get your caffeine fix 
It's an amazing thing. We take this before Yom Kippur. Take a pill before before Yom Kippur, and it takes 12 hours for the pill to degrade, to decompose, and then it starts to filter the, the caffeine, or people take even Advil, or ibuprofen, acetaminophen, and like, you just feel great. It's an unbelievable thing. Like Yom Kippur, like, it's like, oh, I need my coffee, my head's hurting, none of that. You can take a whole cocktail, you know, three of these, pop these pills, and then it's unbelievable. You're like, I got my caffeine, and my head doesn't hurt. It's unbelievable. You probably get less reward for fasting on Yom Kippur, but at least you're not so cranky and irritable. Some people like to supplement with um, with melatonin. Melatonin is a natural chemical that makes you sleepy. And it's a double-edged sword because it doesn't always give you the best sleep. I know with our kids, sometimes we give, like, if we need them to get back on schedule, we give them a little, uh, you know, a little quarter of a milligram of melatonin. It just helps kind of, uh, helps uh, soothe things over. It makes them a little, a, a little sleepy. But the overall idea is that we don't want to miss out on the opportunities of life. We're here to do work. And it's imperative, if we're serious about this, it's imperative to optimize our sleep schedule and our sleep habits. Most of us can probably do as well, maybe even better, with a little bit less sleep. I recently read a book about the about the Navy SEALs. I could not believe what they put these people through. The training, the intensity of the training, how hard they push them and how much they abuse them. Part of it is is the lack of sleep. They, they train them. They train them with such rigor and such intensity. And they have this hell week where they don't sleep. They, they, if they sleep, they, they, they catch a wink here or there. I have this idea. You know, people are obsessed with becoming Navy SEALs. Everyone wants to be a Navy SEAL. And it doesn't make any sense. You read what the, they do to the Navy SEALs, how much they abuse them literally abuse them and everyone wants to become a Navy SEAL. Not everyone, but a lot of people do. What is the logic? So my theory is that the reason why people want to become that is because this shows that you accomplished an incredible feat. You're part of the 1% of the 1%. You're someone who's able to do and to discover incredible powers that you have. You're able to unlock and unleash all this latent potential that you had within you. And there's no way you could have done it unless the drill sergeant and the instructors were so, so, so harsh and so punishing. But look what you did. So I had this idea. I actually, I told this to my wife on Shabbos. She, she didn't think it would really fly. I had an idea to open up a Navy SEAL yeshiva, like yeshiva that's like that. None of this coddling that you have today. Oh, you are great. You are wonderful. You are so delightful, so intelligent and so careful. Oh, you oh, you did this, you did that, you studied a little bit. Amazing, let's make a celebration. None of that. But to just be punishing and unforgiving and brutal and intense with the students. But to force them to say, I want to be a Navy SEAL. And to, and to make them unearth abilities that they didn't even know that they had. Of course, it's a crazy idea, but there's something to it. It used to be 
It used to be in the ancient, ancient, in the, in the, I would say the, the late 19th century, early 20th century yeshiva world. This was the model. This was the model. This was the pedagogical model. The yeshiva, the, the yeshiva populace, it wasn't as big as it is today. It wasn't the given that everyone was being sent to yeshiva. It was just the best of the best. And what they would do is they would try to mold and craft all these students into absolute superstars. And the instructors and the rabbis and the deans and the heads of the yeshiva, they had a policy of very strict criticism of their students. And today this wouldn't fly. Everyone's so weak and feeble. <laughs> maybe, maybe if, they, if the SEALs could do it, then they could put up all, all that abuse and they do it willingly. Maybe there's something to be said about this of going back to the promises that uh, at least 99% of the students just won't, won't cut it. But those SEALs, they want their trident. If you have your trident, you're a success. You're an elite 1% of the 1%. If they could do it, why can't we? Anyhow, that's my side point. Nothing to do with sleep. But uh, I was thinking about, like, read read this book, like the, the amount of punishing and, and, and the, the limitations they put on their sleep. It seems like it's very different than what any of us have ever lived through. But they all do it. All, do it. all the ones who survive who make it through, do it, and they're capable of it. And if they weren't pushed, they would never have known about those capacities. So this is way number 19, sleep, not too much, not too little. Some of the reasons why we sleep, some of the benefits, some of the detriments, a little bit of sleep, a little bit more than we actually need. It's a proper amount, not just Navy SEALs level, but maybe a little bit more than that, but not too much. Don't allow it to overtake your life, way number 19, the mute Shana with a little bit of sleep, not too much and not too little. And of course, my email address is for any questions or comments or feedback, rabbiwalby at gmail.com.